Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the federal single-use plastics ban, plastic food containers, plastic cutlery six-pack rings, plastic straws, and of course... Plastic shopping bags. Now, here's the question this morning. What about compostable shopping bags? Why are they being banned, too? Does this make any sense at all? I got Jerry Gow standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to the federal environment minister here, Stephen Gilbo. These products won't be manufactured anymore in Canada, therefore you won't be able to, 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 to get a hold of them. The ban will affect highly visible items in our lives. Plastic bags, takeout containers, straws, cutlery, stir sticks, even the plastic rings used on six-packs. This decision is supported by science. It will keep our environment clean and wildlife healthy. Okay, well, what about the science around compostable bags, though? Like, why are those being banned, banned, too? Let's check in with Jerry Gao now. Jerry is the founder of Leaf Environmental Products. It makes a line of compostable shopping bags. Very pleased to welcome him. Jerry, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. You bet. I appreciate it a lot. So tell me about your company there and the, and the compostable bags, that you, shopping bags that you make there. Uh, so our company, Leaf, um, has a mission to eliminate all single-use plastics um, through compostable alternatives because we recognize that uh, uh, we are creatures of inertia. So to completely uh, do away with single-use uh, is uh, is hard. Um, so we've come up with the next best thing, which is to have a, a compostable uh, substitute that um, turns into compost um, once you compost it so that it doesn't leave any uh, any trace um, in in our environment. Uh, we've um, been at this since the day it started. Um, my background is in accounting and finance, and uh, you know, one day I just figured I wanted to do something that would make myself happy, that I would see value in. So, um, yeah, we're making these uh, compostable bags, and we've eliminated more than um, 300 million pieces of single-use plastics from from our environment with these alternatives. Uh, and uh, I'm glad to talk about the, the issues going yeah, on. Yeah, for them sure. Right and and I've just been checking out some photographs of the plastic shopping or the compostable shopping bags that you make there, Jerry. And they look, I mean, they look like a normal plastic shopping bag. Like it looks like the same thing. Does it sort of feel and look act like the same type of thing as a plastic bag? Similar. Yes, it, it performs exactly like a normal normal plastic bag, uh, yeah. except there's no plastic in it, Mike. Right, right. And this is certified, like I've heard some people say, oh, hang on a second here, is this some sort of uh, a trick here? Is it really compostable? But the bags that you're making are like, they're certified compostable, correct? Yes, sir. So, Mike, yeah. they are certified compostable under the scientific standard ASTM 6400, or in Europe, uh, it's called ISO 17088, uh, where um, all these products go through a pretty sinuous, strenuous um, testing to make sure that they, in fact, um, turn into to uh, biomass instead of, you know, leave more uh, plastic in our, in our right. environment. Okay, so let's talk about the plastic shopping bag ban in Canada now. This covers your compostable bags, correct? Yes, it does. Yeah. When did you find out about that, how, and how did you feel about it when you heard about it? I was actually when when uh, when I saw the news that um, our government was going to our federal government was going to uh, implement a, a plastic ban, um, single-use plastic ban across the country. I was I was very very happy because we're finally getting caught up. Um, we've we've seen this kind of regulation happen around the country uh, or around uh, the world in in various. Different jurisdictions, and um, once you know this kind of uh, regulation gets put down, you know it's it's also really good for business because um, compostable bags are a proven solution for, for the past like decade uh, against single-use plastics, especially single-use plastic bags. Uh, we've had the ban in um, in Italy uh, ten years ago, and and you know that's all they used um, because they they recognized that people still needed a substitute. So um, Italy was mm. supposed was uh, able to. Um, 
very successfully ban uh, single-use plastic bags um, by adopting compostable bags, and so have uh, various other OECD jurisdictions that have embraced the solution to um, reduce their single-use plastics. Right. So, uh, and despite that, though, in Canada, these compostable shopping bags that you produce are, are banned. And have you tried? Have you tried to explain this, rationalize this with the government, and say, "Hang on a second here. Why are you banning these these shopping bags here? They break down in a landfill. They're compostable." I, I shouldn't be included in the ban. Have you tried to get in a, like an exemption or accommodation? I have. I have a bunch of times. I've um, had a bunch of discussions, Mike, with, with um, the folks at um, Environment Canada, ECCC. Um, <laughs> so... Um, How'd that go? I like the I like the way you said um, in the beginning of the show. You said you know the high visibility items. So visibility was a was a big word that was repeated many uh, numerous times with my discussion with them. I, I said, look, there's no plastic in these. You know, we have um, third party party documentation. I've even gone uh, a step further and said, um, here's a we went to another lab. Uh, you know, SGS, the biggest independent lab in the world, and you know we tested for plastic in this product, and there's no 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 plastic in it. Um, <clears throat> so we've we've gone to show them all that, uh, but currently as it stands in the regulation, it gets lumped in with a category that they call non-conventional plastics, and uh, non-conventional plastics are uh, banned under the current regulations, despite okay. my efforts to explain to them um, that there's no plastic in it. What do you think this means for the future of th this type of technology and innovation and creating these type of compostable bags? Because one of the things, and you and I had a, a text message exchange on this point, like last night at my own home, I was changing the compostable plastic bag in my kitchen scrap bin, right? This is for the comp, for the compost bin we put out. We put the kitchen scraps in this compostable plastic bag, and then the municipality will pick it up in, as part of a compostable compost program that diverts compostable bio waste out of landfills. And it's a very successful program. Like, how come those bags are allowed? Those are not banned, right? <laughs> so I think we go back to the word visibility. So I think, um, so the, the, when we talked with uh, Environment Canada, they said, hey, you can still sell these bags um, at the till, uh, not at the till as a shopping bag, but you can sell them on the shelf as a, as a compostable bin liner. And, and we went back to them and said, you realize it's exactly the same thing. It's a, even the size is the same. The, the thickness, uh, the makeup uh, is all the same. But they said, you know, it's visibility, so we don't want to see people using um, using these bags uh, as a checkout bag. So we're we're gonna allow you to sell that uh, as a um, compostable bin liner because municipalities across Canada all accept uh, bin liners. Of course, right. you don't want to, you know, it's a, it's a huge hassle to line it with, uh, you know, newsprint or something like that because it's organic, so it does get um, pretty messy. Yeah. So that's our our biggest quarry right now, Mike is. Is we can sell it uh, at the till as a compostable bin liner that you know we've all of our uh, most of our um, municipalities have embraced as a as a way to facilitate um, collecting compost, but we can't sell it at the till despite it being the same thing. I'm really worried, uh, Mike, because uh, for big problems like this, we need innovation. So, like yeah. for any. Uh, climate change problems or any environmental issues you know it's really innovation that's gonna push us through that's gonna get so, uh, so solve these issues so you're telling me like you a grocery store would be allowed to sell your compostable shopping bags on the shelf like if it was if it was down aisle three in the grocery store you could go in and buy a box of these bags and, and that'd be fine but you're not allowed to t have one you're not allowed to put your groceries in one at the checkout like the grocery store can't use them to Take your groceries home. Correct. Correct. Okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh man. The, I mean, does this make any sense? No, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, the big oh. thing, like for us, is you know it hampers innovation. I, I keep um, yeah. talking about that word because you know we we've had these problems in the past. If you remember, about twenty, uh, about forty years ago, uh, Mike, we've we transitioned away from from. Um, from paper bags because we said, hey, let's stop cutting down trees to make paper bags. 
So that's use single-use plastic bags. And people were like, okay, that makes sense. Let's, you know, stop cutting down trees and use these products. And then we found out, you know, it's not just the, um, the off-the-shelf cost. It's actually the life cycle cost of, of, of plastic bags because you, yeah. there's so much you have to do to them um, to make sure they don't end up in the environment. But now, you know, instead of looking 40 years into the future to solve this issue, we're, we're going back uh, to paper bags. If you take a look at um, the federal government's um, gazette, uh, their publishings on this regulation, they they uh, encourage or they suggest um, that people should use paper bags instead right. of uh, as a substitute. And, and that's just not going to work. You know, we did the math around that, Mike, and we're going to cut down about a hundred, uh, about 200 million trees in the next 10 years to make paper bags uh, as okay. per their suggestion. Okay. Um, going back Jer to 40 years. Jerry, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. I, I hope this works out for you and your company because it looks like an innovative product that you're creating there from my perspective. Thanks for coming on today to talk about it. Thank you for your time. As of January 31st, 2023, adults 18 and over in British Columbia will no longer be subject to criminal charges for the possession of up to 2.5 grams of certain illegal drugs for personal use, and the drugs will not be confiscated. Okay, that's the former cabinet minister responsible there, Carolyn Bennett, uh, last January announcing decriminalization of drug possession in British Columbia. So as you heard her describe there, 2.5 grams. That is now the legal possession Limit in BC for drugs like heroin, cocaine, fentanyl, crystal meth. And we're the only province in Canada that has done this. And why are we doing it? Well, the government says we want to reduce the stigma of drug use and drug addiction and encourage people to come forward to get help. Okay, is it working? We're six months into this now. We're more than six months. Is it working? Well, if you take a look at the overdose death rate, it certainly does not seem to be going in the right direction. The overdose death rate going up from illicit drugs. Did we make a mistake here with decrim, or is it just uh, we have to give it more time for it to work? Let's check in with Dr. Julian Summers now. He's an addictions researcher, Simon Fraser University. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Julian, thank you for coming on today. Great to be with you, Mike. Okay, let's go back to just a little over six months from now when they announced decriminalization of drug possession in British Columbia. We're the only province that has done this. We're the only province that's received this federal uh, federal accommodation to do this. What went through your mind at that time when, when we were going down this path? Did you think it was a, a worth a try, or did you think it would not work? No, um, I, I didn't. I, I definitely didn't think it was worth a try. It it had all the markings of a misguided fiasco. Um, and some colleagues and I had recently conducted a review on the topic of using global literature on decriminalization. Anyone interested in that can Google the journal Community Safety and Wellbeing and uh, um, find, find that. But uh, um, no place has shown that um, decriminalization or other ways of making drugs more accessible or less stigmatized on its own, strategies that involve that on its own, has resulted in anything but increased harms. Okay, well, there's been, a, there's been a vigorous debate on this in our province here over the last six months about whether this is the right thing or the wrong thing to do. Now, let's listen to someone on the other side of it here for a second. This is Guy Felicella, he, he has been a frequent guest on this show, and, and Guy is a harm reduction advocate. He supports decriminalization of drug possession. He's a, he's a former drug addict himself who managed, managed to get clean. Have a listen to his thoughts on decriminalization, and then I'll get your thoughts. This is a way to actually get people the ability to uh, get support. I actually think this could actually be the thing that removes the stigma that surrounds it so that people are uh, able to reach out. Okay, you know, this is the, uh, the the frequently cited rationale for this, that if we reduce the stigma, more people will reach out, they'll put their hand up and say, look, I, I, I need help, I, I want to get into a program, I want to get clean. And that's what everybody wants. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is that even though there's a lot of division and debate over this topic, we all want to get to the same place, right? We want to improve the situation for people. Does this make sense to you, like if... 
if a police officer, for example, instead of taking someone's drugs away, instead of charging them with possession, gives them a, a business card with the name of uh, someone to call to get help, that they will call and get help. I mean, do we see any increase in people getting treatment? No, we 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 don't see any increase, and a, a huge part of that problem is the inadequacy of our available resources to support people. Um, other places, Oregon more notably even than BC so far, have um, they attempted a much greater balance between decriminalized possession and investing in additional services. And there too, it's proven to be a, a complete fiasco. BC relied even less on additional services. In fact, the provincial health officers report um, petitioning for decriminalization didn't mention immediate investments in any additional resources. They, the, the two things they said would come from this are that police are going to have more time to focus on other forms of crime and that people are going to come forward voluntarily due to the reduced stigma associated with decriminalization. That, unfortunately, is, is a, almost a laughably tragic uh, assumption. Um, we absolutely need to massively bolster the incentives for people to come forward and seek assistance. The, the, the services we're offering right now are not welcoming and not even uh, close to substantial enough to help people walking on our streets with untreated schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, people who've grown up in foster care and matured out of that system and now are literally at wit's end with their addictions, they're unemployed, um, and we need to uh, recognize that there are approaches that have shown clearly effective ways of engaging those individuals and um, bringing them into a path that ultimately leads to social reintegration. We're not doing that at all. Speaking to Dr. Julian Summer, Simon Fraser University addictions researcher, six months into decriminalization of drug possession in our province. Is it working? Is it getting worse? Let's go back to the start of this. I want to play another clip here. This is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and he was asked about decriminalization of drug possession in B.C. Why is the federal government allowing this in our province? And you'll hear him make the, the argument here that Look, we're we're not just going to decriminalize possession, and that's that's all we're going to do. This is going to be a very comprehensive program to make sure that people, if they want help, the help is there for them. Okay, so here is what Trudeau had to say at the time, and then I want to get your thoughts on, on what he has to say here. Here's Justin Trudeau. We need to make sure that, A, we're following science and data, and that's exactly what we're doing. There's been long calls to look at decriminalization, but you don't want to do it without the system and the supports in place, and that's what we were really focused on with BC, to make sure that it wasn't just you know, flipping a switch. Okay, you want to make sure it's not just flipping a switch. Okay, drug possession is legal now, that's it. He says you want to make sure you have this, this system and the resources in place to help people. Julian, is there any indication, you've already touched on this, but this to me is the, the tragic part of this, is that we've decriminalized drug possession, but there has not been, as far as I can see, a dramatic, any kind of dramatic increase in resources to help people who actually want to get off drugs. Your thoughts? That's demonstrably true. I, I, again, I encourage anyone interested in details to, to have a look at our review in community safety and well-being. The BC police chiefs and the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police both issued reports on this. Other, sorry, other departments across the country did. I'll just focus on those two and uh, in advance. And, and they both said the same thing, that there need to be massive uh, investments in additional services that currently are not available um, be, as a condition of their support for decriminalizing possession. And in BC, the chiefs wrote that in 75% of the communities that are serviced by their members, there are no resources to take people to, none. So they're giving a clear sense of the magnitude of the gap, and that has not been narrowed. We've had this policy, unfortunately, rammed down our throats. You mentioned at the top that BC is the only province doing this. BC is the only place on planet Earth 
thinking that decriminalizing possession and not doing anything else of a substantial nature is going to result in improvement. No other place thinks this way. And there's no science to back it up. The reports that have been prepared, the advocacy is very much an echo chamber of BC-based people who are not themselves experts in the field of addiction, who have claimed that this is the approach, they've linked it to things like bodily autonomy and that sort of thing. Addiction is a disorder that is harmful addictions, the ones that we, that we include as mental disorders, are defined on the basis of a loss of control over behavior that causes harm to oneself or others, loss of control. It is no kindness to individuals struggling with addiction to prioritize what they say they would like. We need to put options in front of them that they have not seen before and that are attractive enough that they would consider them viable and yeah. um, and that could lead to, the, to having natural incentives to reduce addiction. We need to reduce risk and the demands for addiction. All that our current government has been doing is focusing on supply. Some people are calling it war on drugs 2.0 because all we hear about is harms associated with supply. What's it caused by? Toxic drug supply. No one is talking about risk and reducing risk by lowering demand for addiction. And that's where all the science leads us. Okay, here, here's another question I have for you, and this sort of jumped out at me too, and that is uh, these resource cards that police have been instructed to hand out. So if a police officer sees someone using drugs, for example, in public, do not charge, do not arrest them, do not charge them with possession of drugs, and do not take their drugs away. Okay, so that's a critical part of this as well. Instead, police officers are told to give the person a resource card that can direct them place somewhere where they can get help. One of the things that I find weird about this is that is not being that is not being tracked or monitored. Like we don't know how many of these cards have been distributed. We don't know how many people have used the information on the cards to get help. Like that's not being measured or tracked. Isn't that kind of crucial to judging whether this this program is working. Your thoughts? Well, there there are a number of things, uh, and it's a good example, though. It's a reminder of the evidence-free environment that this policy is being rolled out in. Um, these these cards, when they've been referred to, and I've read a little bit of that, the the police departments are saying, well, you know, we're not we're not keeping track of how many we're handing out, and uh, um, and the and the coastal uh, the, sorry the health authorities are saying, well, this is a this is a provincial initiative, so we're not keeping track of you know how many cards or how many people with cards are contacting us, and it's looking like really like a game of of, of evidence hot potato. Nobody wants to touch it, and it's because people involved in the system. First responders, including police, health professionals in, in our hospitals and community health clinics, are well aware that this is a, a massive fiasco. And um, there's really no semblance of, of a solution coming down uh, from, the, from the top, from the people responsible for this policy. Um, and, and this is not the first time that they've been. Um, um, uh, light on on evidence we heard from the from the chief coroner and from provincial health officer that diversion for instance of so-called safe supply does not happen and and it's it's suspicious that people would say that because it's written about in the even the bc based literature that diversion is very much happening and so it it and and it it raises a, a sort of a, a red flag that they are adamant that this is not happening. They don't, they're not saying how they know that's the case, um, but there's very little measurement across the board. And by the way, on a personal note, measures that we did have in place for over 20 years in BC, this government ordered to have destroyed. So there's hmm. really a, a consistent theme of an, um, an allergy to relevant evidence here. And I believe, having watched this for a number of years, that that's because the government wants to be able to make up the narrative without huh. the encumbrance of facts.
All right. Let's talk about the explosion in popularity of Airbnb and other short-term rentals. Is this exacerbating the rental crisis in Vancouver and actually everywhere in British Columbia? Rents have gone through the roof. Vacancies are very, very low. But if you take a look on Airbnb, man, there are thousands of Airbnbs available. Is that why the rents are so high and the vacancy so low because everything's being rented out in Airbnb? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Adam Olson, BC Green, MLA, Saanich North in the Islands. Very pleased to welcome you to the studio. Adam, thanks a lot for coming on today. Yeah, good morning. Nice to be in studio with you. It is nice to have you here, and thanks for doing it. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Airbnb, and you're calling for the government to step in here because you think this is a problem. Like, what is the problem in, in your estimation? Well, let's just let's start anecdot- anecdotally. I think, you know, we were talking before we went on here about the statistics that have, that have you know, um, started to started to show up. Yeah. Anecdotally, I can talk about the communities that I represent on the southern Gulf Islands. And, you know, we've got this interesting tension in the community. There's the need for, this, for the Airbnbs in order to be able to house the people that come and visit the southern Gulf Islands. Sure. However, Tourism is huge, right? A hundred percent. And it's a huge part of the economy every year. Uh, except also those places were where workers were living to the greatest extent. And so now businesses are having a hard time finding places for their workers to, to work. And a, a huge number of those units that were long-term rentals have turned to short-term vacation rental platforms and are and are being rented a day at a time or a few days at a time. And so, you know, I would say in answer to your question as we were coming in, uh, is it the problem? It's probably not the problem, but is it part of the problem? It, I, anecdotally, I think statistically, it is a part of the problem, and it's a part of the problem that this provincial government can address. Let's take a look at some of these numbers here, because this is sort of going viral right now on Twitter, just looking at some of these numbers on in Vancouver. So this was posted by a Twitter user here this morning, and it's been passed around hundreds of times. The number of active listings in Vancouver for short-term rentals, 4,929 active listings in Vancouver. Now in Vancouver, they've got a system where you have to have a business license, right? Yep. To run one of these. But there's only 2,964 actual business licenses in Vancouver compared to 4,929 listings. Yeah. So there appear to be, what What does that mean? There's like thousands of illegal or unlicensed short-term rentals out there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's important to unpack this a little bit. You know, we went through this, uh, you know, these disruptive business models came in and, and, and upended the Airbnb and the other short-term vacation rentals were, were one of those. But a decade ago, they, they upended traditional uh, markets. And what didn't happen here in British Columbia was the, the provincial government didn't step in and create some regulatory frameworks for, for these now unregulated parts of the market uh, in order to be in alignment with the rest of the, the regulated marketplace. And so um, what ended up happening over time, then the cost just gets passed down to local governments. And so, you know, we've got this patchwork across the province of different communities trying to do different things in order to be able to address what is a housing issue. We've got senior governments, provincial and and federal governments, uh, complaining that local governments aren't able to achieve all the things that they want to achieve in terms of supply. Right. And so (laughs) you've and and. Partly that's true, and partly it's the fact that the provincial government didn't step in and regulate uh, this um, very de- ended up being a very destructive uh, business model that uh, took a bunch of units out of long-term rentals. And and you know so so what the what we called for in May, and I and I think it's important because this is now months, and we haven't heard much from the provincial government about this. They've been very. Uh, almost silent on, on this. Well, they issue. said they're going to do something. Okay. Well, I mean, I talked to Ravi Kalon, the housing minister, about this on the show, and he said, sure. look, this is a problem and we're going to do, we're going to do something about it. So our call was what basically echoes what the UBCM, the UBC municipality calls, uh, were, and that was to regulate the market, create a registry, a registration number that the, uh, platforms have to show when they're, um, you know, displaying the, the availability of places, uh, on their platform. So there can be accountability there, and then as well provide funding for local governments to be able to enforce. And with the numbers that you provided uh, just a, f- a few seconds ago with 2,000 uh, units that are online is is an indication of the lack of enforcement yeah. of the of the bylaw. And I think that to be fair to the city of Vancouver and the other c- communities across the province, they were wholly unprepared to be a, taking on this responsibility, which uh, the provincial government can do through legislation. 
every community is struggling to find a way through. Yeah, you know, in some ways you can't blame people for, for doing this. You, you know, if you have, if you own a property, I mean, why not make money off of it? Why not put it on Airbnb and run it like a hotel room? If you can get away with it, it'd be a lot less hassle than having like permanent tenants that you can't evict or you can, you can change the rental rate anytime you want. <laughs> it just well, makes sense of why people are doing it. Let's also be clear that this provincial government, the current provincial government, tightened long-term rental rules as well uh, and, yeah. and, and tightened those in favor of the renter. And, and those were, those were uh, moves that I and my colleagues supported. We, we right. believed that there needed to be some tightening, but also in order to do that, you have to deal with the entire market. You can't just turn some screws over here and not expect there to be an impact downstream from it. And one of the impacts or or maybe you know in the middle of the stream was the the short term vacation rental. So you yeah. you're starting to tighten the screws when it comes to long term uh, rentals and the relationship between the landlord and the tenant uh, in that marketplace. That's going to push some people to that you know that may be inclined to say you know what look I don't want that relationship anymore. And so um, and just so and they, just just rent it out on an Airbnb instead. One hundred percent. Yeah. And, you know I in my constituency office I've heard virtually every kind of rendition of this. I've heard people who have sold their rental units and say, look, I'm, I don't want to be a renter. I don't want to be a landlord anymore. Uh, we've heard the stories that the, of, of uh, renters in our community not being able to pay for the rents because the increase in cost of renting has gone up in some cases because of this. You know, we, we've got the story in, uh, in Montreal of the ghost hotel where, you know, one person rents all of the units in a building and basically creates this uh, what is, a, for all intents and purposes, a hotel. We've got huge investment money in hotels looking at this saying, you know, excuse me, yeah. you create one set of rules for us, but then there's this other set of rules or no rules, you know. So this is what happens when you have a regulated market, and we, we believe that this market should be regulated, and then you leave a por portion of it unregulated, what happens? Is it is it's had some dramatic impacts? Here's the interesting thing, too. It's not just Vancouver, but it's it's all around British Columbia. You know, it's towns all around B.C. have got this uh, huge Airbnb presence. Now, have a listen to this here now. This really jumped out at me. Uh, this is a TikTok video, a TikTok user named Lily, and she lives in Salmon Arm. And you'll hear her describe here uh, how she would she was looking for a place to live earlier in Invermere, Invermere, B.C. And she describes how difficult it was to find a place to rent. And then as an, as an actual person who lives in the town, living and working there permanently. And then when she goes and checks how many Airbnbs are in Invermere. It's pretty wild here. Just have a listen to this from TikTok. We don't have a housing crisis in Canada. We have an Airbnb crisis in Canada. We just moved from Invermere, B.C. to Salmon Arm, B.C. And the Invermere area likes to boast 885 places for Airbnb. And at the time of looking for an apartment, I can only find two listings. She says she could only find two places for rent. In Invermere, but there were 885 Airbnbs in Invermere. And when I first heard that, that can't be true. That little town like that, it's got that many. And you go on Airbnb, and sure enough, it, it has hundreds of Airbnbs there. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, I think that uh, the, largely what's happened is it's made it a more tenuous situation for renters in our province, um, frankly, because, you know, I, I know of people that have, while they've been looking for a place to rent full-time, uh, long-term lease, uh, they've been using Airbnb or one of the other short-term vacation rental platforms, and they've been able to find a place fine, except it's very, very expensive to yeah. be renting um, these these buildings or th these units uh, that are designed, the model is for short-term, sure. to, to rent those over the long-term. So, um, it's it's making life uh, far more tenuous for people in communities, as pointed out here in Invermere, uh, other communities right across the province. I'm seeing it through all of the Southern Gulf Island communities that mm. I represent. Uh, I see it uh, in Sydney and, and and on the Saanich Peninsula. So, you know, uh, and and as we talked about the city of Vancouver, which has, you know, a lot of horsepower when it comes to a large bureaucracy and a, a very large tax base to be able to enforce something like this. 
um, they're not able to enforce it with their, their own uh, registry or their own uh, bylaws uh, very well. So it is going to take the provincial government to step in. We called on this back in May. We, we, we think that, you know, getting through another summer will, I think, uh, uh, highlight that we've seen the imbalance. Uh, there's a lot of tourists and not a lot of workers that are uh, working in those businesses uh, is one of the outcomes of that. And I think that uh, we're looking to the provincial government this fall to step in with the other housing policy that there apparently is going to be on the table with something here. Okay, let's listen to another part of this this TikTok video. Okay, so this is this same TikTok user, Lily, here talking about how many Airbnbs are in these small towns in British Columbia. Have a listen to this. Where we are in Salmon Arm right now, it is reading 711 places for Airbnb. Down the highway in Chase, B.C., over a thousand places for Airbnb. Municipal governments, provincial governments, and federal governments have failed everywhere on this front and have let this get out of control. Yeah, and so when I heard that, I thought, oh, come on. Chase, BC has got like a thousand Airbnbs. And when you go on the Airbnb website and you type in Chase, BC, it says there's over a thousand, thousand places available. Like, you know, this is massive, right? This is maybe bigger than we think. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, yeah. So, so look, I, I think that part of the challenge is is that um, without a regulatory framework, without an ability to register, without some a, a relationship, a proper relationship uh, with these uh, short term vacation rental platforms, uh, where we can then hold them accountable and that they can be part of uh, creating a, a an accountable system, um, we don't know. We've got far less information than we could have and that we should have. You know, a a modern, mature government would look at this and say, at the very least, let's understand what the size and the scope of the problem is, and we would get in and have a relationship, and we'd start to we'd start to put all of that together. And so, you know, I think that as as uh, as the UBCM called for, as municipalities have called for across the province, pleading with this provincial government uh, to take action. Uh, curiously, they have not, but yet the the rhetoric around the housing supply issue on the other side continues at the same kind of robustness as it has. And, you know, I'm not, and this isn't to cast criticism necessarily at the other part of the narrative. It's just to say there's this inconsistency that this okay. provincial government needs to reconcile. Adam, thanks for coming in today. It's a, it's an important topic we're going to continue to follow. Appreciate your time. Thanks for yours. I appreciate talking. To okay, you. thanks a lot. It's Adam Olson there, Green Party MLA, Saanich North in the Islands, calling on the provincial government to step in here on Airbnb. Okay, it's time to have a little fun now with one of our favorite guests on the show, Kurt Smakel, movie critic and movie buff. And we're going to talk about this question, what movie traumatized you as a child? Okay, when we were children, I think we all watched a movie. Most people have got some sort of memory like this. We all watched a movie that we found disturbing, scary, gave us nightmares. You remember a scene or a character to this very day. Sometimes the parents don't realize that the movie is that scary when they allow their kids to watch this particular movie. A lot of people remember, I remember when I was a kid, we watched uh, The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Those flying monkeys, man. Those were scary. But I definitely have one movie that I saw as a child that absolutely traumatized me. And I'm going to play a clip of it for you here in a second. My guest is Kurt Smakel. Kurt is a movie critic and podcast host. 3angrynerds.com is his website. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's always great to come on. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And I love this topic. Now, let's play. I'm going to play a clip here from the movie that completely freaked me out as a kid. Now, I was eight years old. When I first saw this movie, Kurt, in a theater, and I had nightmares probably for a week. I remember I couldn't get to sleep that night, and it was Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Let's have a listen. The irresistible war machine of the guerrilla army versus the devastating secret mind weapons of the subterranean mutants in civilization's final battle to answer the ultimate question. Can a planet long endure, half human and half ape? Okay, man, I was absolutely freaked out and terrified when I saw this movie when I was a child. When you look back on it now, it seems pretty, pretty harmless now. But 
at the time. I was terrified. Have you seen that one? You've seen all the Planet of the Apes movies, right? I did, yeah. I rewatched them all back when the reboot movies were coming out. And uh, I remember Beneath the Planet of the Apes being a very pessimistic and uh, just, I don't know, just very nihilistic film in a lot of ways. But, uh, yeah, it's good. I, I enjoy it. I enjoy when sometimes these movies get... Uh, a little different than their sequels there. It's, it's actually a very good movie, and the scenes that, that really scared me when I was a kid, where you had these mutants that were living underground, this sort of post-apocalyptic uh, nuclear, bu- nuclear war scenario, and there are these mutants living underground who actually worship an atomic bomb, and oh, I mean, it just got... It just got insane, and I that scarred me for, for quite a while. Now, Kurt, I know you have had some similar experiences, right? Like, which ones stand yeah. out for you? It's funny for me. I always found the movies that scared me as a kid were movies that were filmed in B.C. because I'd go watch a movie like Lake Placid, and I think they filmed that around, like, the Hayward Lake, Elouette Lake area. And I'm like, I go swimming in those lakes. You tell me there might be an alligator in there. I'm... I'm going to believe you at a young age. So it was typically the movies where I could make that little bit of a connection to the real life uh, locations that I was in. Okay. Lake Placid, 1990 kind of a horror film. I remember it spawned a bunch of sequels too. Pretty, pretty popular. Let's listen to a little bit of the trailer here. Lake Placid. This one freaked Kurt out when he was a kid. Let's listen. It has existed since prehistoric times. It was worshipped by primitive cultures. It can kill a man with one crushing bite. <laughs> okay, I can kind of understand how that would that would disturb you as a child. I mean, what kind of yeah. impact did that have on you, Kurt? Well, I mean, when you go swimming in the lake where they filmed this movie, all of a sudden you start to think maybe there is a giant prehistoric alligator in this <laughs> lake. Maybe I don't want to go past knee level uh, water there, so. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I think a lot of people had the similar kind of reaction to Jaws, you know, when Jaws, oh, yeah. you know, people didn't want to go in the water anytime soon. Um, oh, no, I was, placid, so. I was just going to say, like, I'm older than you, Kurt, and I remember when the summer when Jaws came out and everyone was absolutely terrified. People didn't even want, didn't even want to go in a swimming pool. That's, that's no. how bad it was. That's how bad it was. Okay. Um, people know the movie It, right? Stephen, it's a Stephen King novel that became a movie but it was also it was a tv show too right first uh yeah so it was a made for tv movie it uh aired over two weekends but i think most people probably know of it from the video rental stores they rented it out as like uh i think two vhs's uh back in the day but uh that similarly too was filmed in parts of bc so if you look throughout that uh tv movie at least not i'm not talking about the reboot that came out uh less than a decade ago uh, yeah. You'll notice a lot of different areas in and around uh, the Vancouver area, in particular, like the North Shore and stuff like that. So, yeah, definitely a, a spooky movie, but let alone when you realize you maybe are closer to those locations than you might realize. Okay, going back to the 1990s for that one, just like the Lake Placid movie. So here's a little bit of the trailer for the It TV series. Yeah, this one really uh, disturbed Kurt back in the day. Let's listen. It's not just us. It's all the other kids, too. Who's going to be next? It kills kids, damn it. <laughs> Hi, Georgie. Oh, 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 man. It kills kids, damn it. I can see how that would be disturbing to a kid. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think because it was a made-for-TV movie, a lot of people watched that that shouldn't have because, you know, <laughs> unlike video or movies where you know people are you know watching over who's renting the movies or going to the theaters you can just turn on the tv and watch that and uh nobody really paid too much attention to what uh kids were watching then so uh yeah i definitely watched that way too young uh than i was supposed to okay and also clowns are clowns are scary right generally oh for sure yeah yeah, they are. They are. they're creepy and they're creepy and kind of scary at the, at the best of times for sure okay um what other films do you think, like when, when you discuss this topic with your friends, like what other films are typically cited as, as, the, as the ones that really really left a damaging imprint on, on people when they watch them when they were kids? What, what are some of the big ones that you've heard about? 
Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of it uh, does, like, it deals with kind of specific fears, right? Like, for instance, people who have a fear of dogs will oftentimes cite Cujo uh, as a movie yeah. that kind of gave them a lot of fears. Uh, you know, It for Clowns and stuff like that. Um, I remember, too, there was a movie that came out in the 80s. It was a Stephen King uh, movie, or it was an adaption of a Stephen King book called uh, Silver Bullet, and that movie... Uh, it's just a very intense movie at the beginning. There's a lot of gruesome kills and then kind of tapers off at the beginning. But yeah, a lot of people kind of say that movie, even though it's probably not super well known in terms of Stephen King's work nowadays. Okay. We got uh show producer, Corey Latondra on the, on the line. Corey wants to jump in here. Hey, Corey. Well, hit the got me now. Hey Mike, how you doing? Yeah, I, I can hear you, Corey. Okay. So the one that got you, tell me about the one that got you when you were a kid. All right, the movie is called Fire in the Sky, and I think I'm seven, eight years old when my dad rents this on VHS. Essentially, it is an alien abduction movie. It's loosely based on what is like a true story of someone who says they got abducted. There's this one scene where it's the abduction. He's in the spaceship, and he's getting experimented on by the aliens, and it is the scariest thing I think I've ever seen in a movie. It stayed with me for weeks as a kid i could not sleep i'm having nightmares and to this day alien stuff just freaks me out a little bit more than i think it should and it is all thanks to fire in the sky okay fire in the sky let's listen to a little bit of the trailer here the story that travis walton and five other witnesses told was so unbelievable so unimaginable that it has become the most famous case of UFO abduction ever reported. <laughs> okay, and I just made the mistake of looking at part of this movie on YouTube, too, and I can see why it it, it had that effect on you, uh, for sure, Corey. Let's check in with Tim French. T- Tim, you what one, uh, You had a, an interesting one that uh, that scared you when you were a kid, right? So, yeah, so this one's quite particular for me. So, now, like, I uh, don't get me wrong. I'm a huge fan of Steven Spielberg. I love Close Encounters of the Third Kind very deeply. It's one of my all-time yeah. favorites. But growing up, E.T. scared the living daylights out of me. Just something <laughs> about him and the way his voice was and that when they first introduce him, they sort of keep him in the, the shadows in the dark. Just that whole, just the way that they reveal him was very scary to me. And then later in the movie when E.T.'s dying and he's very pale and he's oh. like, he's like those gro- just it was it just so many things about it were so uncomfortable for me as a kid i still can't watch it today <laughs> okay, okay kurt what do you think of that et wasn't et supposed to be cute uh yeah but it's also at a time when uh, a lot of filmmakers really were blurring the lines on what uh was children's entertainment i mean nowadays there's such clearly defined boundaries but back in the 80s i mean yeah something like uh indiana jones and the temple of doom which you know arguably was being marketed towards children, but had a bunch of very terrifying elements to it. E.T. is in that same ballpark where, yeah, definitely there were some terrifying elements to it, even though it was being marketed primarily towards children. Okay, we're talking about kids uh, or movies that traumatize you with when you were a kid. My guest is Kurt Smakehall, movie critic and podcaster. Lots of calls on this one. Rick in Pitt Meadows. Hi, Rick. Go ahead. Hey, uh, Mike. Yeah, um, Believe it or not, uh, when uh, I was about three, I guess, uh, I don't know, you remember Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the one with Burl Ives? Sure, sure, of course, yeah. Yeah, well, when I saw that abominable snowman, that was oh, yeah. it for me. <laughs> uh, when, when it popped its head over the mountain there and it started growling, <laughs> look out. And then uh, <laughs> as, a, as a young adult, uh, the first alien creeped me out, too. Alien, oh, of course, yes. Oh, yeah, that creeped everybody out. Alien. Thank you, Rick, for that. Now, it's funny when Rick told that story, Kurt, about uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Ranger and the Abominable Snowman, because I I remember my little brother being scared of that one, too, (laughs) when we were kids. We used to kind of give him the business over that. George in Nanaimo. Hi, George. Go ahead. Hi, guys. I mean, uh, whenever this subject comes up, everybody thinks of the obvious ones like The Exorcist. But for me, it's actually a TV show. There was a TV show on about 20 years ago called Tales from the Dark Side, and there was an episode on that called The Shadow Man. You can find it on YouTube, and the ending of that gave me the willies for months and months, and I can still watch that, and it still freaks me out. So I encourage you to look that up on YouTube, Tales from the Dark Side, The Shadow Man. It's an absolute masterpiece. 
Okay, yeah, look it up if you dare. Kurt, are you know, do you know that one, Kurt? I can't recall that specific episode, but yeah, I remember that show in general. And yeah, yeah. it was, uh, I think, an anthology series. So they kind of told different stories in each episode with like some kind of through lines kind of connecting them also. Uh, but yeah, definitely. There's always the there was a few of those shows around. You know, I know there was the Alfred Hitchcock Presents and a few others that yeah, yeah. there was some pretty scary stuff in some of those episodes. Laura in Langley. Hi, Laura. Go ahead. Oh hi. Um, I was just thinking about um, the Wizard of Oz. Like that to me, I don't know. The whole the whole movie was just kind of creepy, but in a good way, I guess. But but the. <laughs> The the scene with the witch drive, you know, she's riding her bicycle in the fields, and just I can just still see it, and oh, she just creeped me out. Yes, and of that... course, the birds. Yes. You know. Oh, the birds, Hitchcock. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Laura, thank you for that. You know, a lot of kids, I think, were scared by scenes in The Wizard of Oz for sure. I was when I was a kid. Alex in New West. Hi, Alex. Oh my God, Darren McGavin, the Night Stalker, the original TV movie about the vampire in Vegas. The closet scene still terrifies me. I still have a hard time watching it. I was eight years old, and I think I slept with my parents for about a week after that. <laughs> Thank you. I remember that one, The Night Stalker. That was a, a scary one for for sure. Very popular uh, TV show at the time, for sure. Ray in Kamloops. Hi, Ray. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I'm 77 sure. years old, and I saw this movie when I was 13. It was the original The Fly movie, and oh. it was a fellow was in a machine. He got trapped in with a fly and came out half part fly and part human. At the very end of the movie, he just his head and his arm were the fly, so he had himself in a crusher and crushed that. The rest of him was caught in a spider web, and you see the spider coming down on the web, covering him, and this little thing's going, help me, help me. And then this old man's walking by, sees this, and puts a rock down and, and kills everybody. And that was, I'm telling you, that was not that was a long night for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's Thank that's you. a classic. The David Cronenberg remake of The Fly too was uh, was quite scary. I recall too, Kurt. Oh yeah, that one's one of my favorites. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not too sure about the original one, but the David Cronenberg remake for sure. I mean, that has a lasting imprint in my memory. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I remember being kind of disturbed by that one myself. Heather and Burnaby. Hi, Heather. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I was uh, the birds was one that scared me. I was five. My mom was doing laundry, and I begged them to let me watch it. She was anyway. I kept grabbing the sheets and pulling them over my head. But after watching the birds, my brother and I, when we come home from school in East Vancouver, and the birds would be flying to go to their roost wherever they go, we'd be running home with our coats over our head. And the other <laughs> one was that chop chop sweet Charlotte. It was horrible I, for the rest for like, even I'm in almost 60 and sometimes I'll still remember you got to keep every body part in the covers. Otherwise it'll get chopped off. by the, <laughs> so Heather, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Isn't that amazing? I think everybody, just about everyone's got a story like this, Kurt, uh, those scenes, mm-hmm. those movies, those TV shows that stay with you forever. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of people get, uh, you know, fears based on a lot of these too, right? You know, yeah. fears kind of last all throughout our lives in a way when you think about it. Thank you, Kurt. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.